when we're using positive reinforcement in training, there's a huge rule where the learner has to choose the reinforcer. A lot of times the teacher will choose it and say, well, I've been rewarding them. I've been giving them money. I've been giving them this. I've been giving them that. But for it to technically be reinforcing, the learner has to be able to choose that. Because, you know, for example, we've seen this a lot with the, with the hiring, you know, problems that have been going on. Um, people will be offering more money, offering more money, offering more money. But for some people, it's not about the money. It's, it's about the company itself. It's about benefits. It's about other things. So the, the learner has to be able to choose the reinforcer for it to be reinforcing. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another great episode of Out of the Hourglass. The NCG Book Club continues this month with Daniel Pink's bestseller, Drive, The Surprising Truth That Motivates Us. Facilitated by NCG coach Colin Nolan, our group highlights the major takeaways and personal applications of Pink's concepts, a step away from the traditional thoughts and motivational drivers. Pink describes the evolution of human motivation, one that began at the early need for survival, Motivation 1.0, to his most recent theory of Motivation 3.0, a compilation of autonomy, mastery, and purpose the deeply human need to direct our own lives, to learn and create new things, and to do better by ourselves and our world in all aspects of life, both professionally and personally. By understanding the intrinsic versus extrinsic desires of yourself, the people around you, and the environment best suited for your operational style, we are empowering each other with the tools to succeed and ultimately generating the framework for our individual primary aims. Out of the Hourglass is a podcast channel dedicated to helping small business owners and contractors visualize their goals, develop high-performing teams, and build sustainable growth. It's time to get out of the hourglass. All right, welcome everyone to another Electric NCG Book Club. Today, we are discussing Drive by Daniel Pink. This book tackles what I believe to be one of the most fundamental questions business owners and leaders have. What motivates people? What drives them to excellence in any given direction? So put the keys in the ignition, buckle up, and let's drive. Here we go. Sydney, you're first up. Can you, would you mind giving, getting started here? And, and how would you describe the book Drive to a stranger if you could use you know, four sentences or less? And extra credit, you can talk about the three different um, m- m- motivating, you know, 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, if so you could. Sure. So Drive is a book about what motivates people. And Pink argues that what motivates people is largely intrinsic, right? Versus extrinsic. Um, he talks about purpose, mastery, and autonomy as his three, what he calls motivation two, or sorry, 3.0. Um, and he He relates that to motivation 2.0, which is what a lot of people know as operant conditioning, BF Skinner, the use of rewards and punishment in in learning. Um, And he he really talks about how when you're trying to teach somebody something or you're trying to run an organization, if somebody doesn't have that intrinsic feel to it about what's going on, then they may not learn as well, or they may not be, you know, as, as productive as an employee. 
And what what's Motivation 1.0, just so we can cover the basis there? Uh, motivation 1.0 is our drives as a human. So food, sex, sleep. <laughs> right. It's kind of like the hierarchy, right? So it's right. it's your basic needs. Then it was this, the carrot and stick. And then now we're moving on to what he, he, he dubs as a 3.0, right? The intrinsic desire. And Molly, you know, Pink talks about the three aspects of motivation 3.0 that Cindy touched on, autonomy, mastery, and purpose. Mm-hmm. Can you take us on a bit of a deeper dive on those and, and how can you relate to those in your world and, and your career thus far? I think you had some really interesting notes on this. Yeah, sure. So um, as Cindy mentioned, autonomy, mastery, and purpose being the three components of motivation 3.0 or this intrinsic motivation. Um, so autonomy being um, having the personal freedom to choose, freedom of your time, freedom to do certain tasks um, in the technique in which you want to do these tasks and the team, those who you want to do those tasks with. Um, mastery relating to wanting that person wanting to be, be a master or more skilled in a certain competency. <clears throat> so doing deliberate practice with setting goals towards something that they're looking to get better at. Uh, what I found interesting was that mastery isn't always completed. There isn't always an end goal. The journey always continues because we're never, we're never fully the master at something. And then the last one being purpose. Um, understanding um, the value and the impact that you have is what you're doing purposeful. And is that, is that desire for that impact and something that, you know, that drives you to do it because you see the impact that it brings. Um, How I related, I mean, a couple of things, I mean, from an autonomy standpoint, thinking about how, you know, I operate and we operate, I definitely have, and a lot of us do autonomy in how we choose to go about our day and how we um, prioritize things. Um, mastery, I related to it personally from um, a marathon perspective. I chose to do a marathon that was painful and there's an emotional and physical component to it. And you're never, there's always a journey to get better at running and being faster and feeling stronger um, and working with the coach and getting feedback and getting goals set for me. Uh, it's just one area of my life where I feel like I was trying to get better at something that I want to continue at getting better. Yeah. The, the marathon training and really all kind of endurance sports is one area where mastery really I think shines. That, that is what, what you're after, right? And you're never going to get there. It's like an asymptote. Catherine. You know, I, I, it was interesting when I, when I was looking at that, that, that really does drop for me ties into what leaders can do with individual development plans, because now we've got an opportunity to take people and push them a little bit out of their comfort zone by giving them a, you know, the, the Goldilocks, right? The Goldilocks, which is, you know, give them a project that might stretch them. That's going to get them closer to mastery. That's going to challenge them in a way that maybe their regular routine job doesn't. Um, so I, you know, I, I, I felt like he was, he was articulating what we are saying when we say challenge somebody outside of what their norm is, look at their motivators on their disc, look at, look at the things that are intriguing to them and give them a project for that. Brian. <clears throat> yeah. On this topic, uh, mastery, um, Molly, just playing off of your concept, I, I, I think of uh, people's unique ability, and I, I like to find out what a person's superpower is, 
And then I, I found this element of getting into a, a state of flow, a state of flow to be really, really interesting, where you just feel like, you know, you got this, you, you nailed this. And I think we need to spend more time helping people get into that, that uh, flow. Like flow for Andrew is, is working a, a spreadsheet. Um, and by the way, I, I can get lost there too. I, I can get lost in a, a budgeting spreadsheet and feel some flow. Yeah, can, can someone give me a kind of a broader, Brian touched on a broader definition of flow and kind of what that really means? Andrew. Uh, yeah, so flow, we actually I took a whole class in it in college. Um, it's the point at which the challenge just barely exceeds current capability. And so if you're on the y-axis, if you have challenge on the x-axis, the horizontal axis is experience. You want to you want to hit that point just above capability. Um, so if if I went to play tennis against Roger Federer, there would be no flow. There'd be no flow. Right. If you play tennis against Brian, if you play tennis against me, Brian Nolan, there'd be no flow. It would, it would also be no flow. It would be too easy of an opponent. <laughs> you would throw your <laughs> racket against the ground. And then, but if I played someone who even even was my exact. Uh, ability, I would still not experience flow. It would be someone that made me push myself just enough. That enough is different for each person, but just enough. Yeah. So I think the, the way I, I heard it, that really describes it well, you, you did a great job there, but getting, getting lost in an activity to the point where all of a sudden you look up and you see what time it is and like time flew by without you really noticing it, right? It's when you're so engrossed in something that it just consumes you. And that more time you spend in flow in life, whether it's your job, ideally, or even your personal life, like playing tennis, for example, the happier, more intrinsically fulfilled you're going you're gonna to be, right? Go ahead, Andrew. So I think in a practical way, this applies to everyday life in the sense of how we set goals for people. Some people really love super challenging goals, and that gets them into flow. Some people like a more stair-step approach. D likes to think about uh, uh, big risks until they're no longer big risks, right? What do, what do we call it? And yeah, not the big risk, but so when you're setting goals for people, you know, it doesn't ha it isn't necessarily need to be uh, super achievable. It needs, it needs to be what gets, what motivates them in their stretch. So here's where field supervisors need to spend a lot of time getting to know people. And being able to put them in a position, so now it connects to situational leadership, connecting people to one step above where they are in a way that challenges them and everybody's different. And Sydney, you, you touched on this. I'm going to get to you know, just one second, Dave. Sydney, you touched on this in your, your notes. You talked about finding the right reinforcement for the right trainee, right? Can right. you talk a little, little bit about that in your experience? Yeah, so when we're using positive reinforcement in training, there's a huge rule where the learner has to choose the reinforcer. Um, a lot of times the teacher will choose it and say, well, I've been rewarding them. I've been giving them money. I've been giving them this. I've been giving them that. But for it to technically be reinforcing, the learner has to be able to choose that. Because, you know, for example, we've seen this a lot with the, with the hiring you know, problems that have been going on, um, people will be offering more money, offering more money, offering more money. 
But for some people, it's not about the money. It's it's about the company itself. It's about benefits. It's about other things. So the the learner has to be able to choose the reinforcer for it to be reinforcing. Totally. And and you know, I, I have some clients that in the past probably were doing this without really knowing it by sending out surveys of what you want. We would would you want us to implement a health uh, insurance program, 401k, more time off? Like what what's driving you? Right, more group right. activities. So knowing your, your people and what drives them, and that kind of gets back to the IDP as well, right? What's their, their primary aim? Uh, D, you you had your hand raised for a bit. I also wanted to ask you about the mundanity. Mon, mon, I can't even. I've been trying to say this word for like two days now. Mundanity of excellence. That mon, I thought. I, I think really it's. I think it's mundanity of excellence, and mundanity it's funny because I had been listening to another podcast and they mentioned this, but in a different a slightly different way, like talking about reaching excellence through just practice and, and how like, that's most of the battle. Like when you talk to these Olympic athletes, it's like, I started when I was 10 years old and I just kept swimming and swimming and swimming and swimming every day, every day. And, um, the great thing was like having that little, um, added idea of, uh, doing it when you don't want to do it. You love it most of the time. You're in flow most of the time, but still there, it's not every time, but staying with that practice um, becomes the key to becoming great. And it's not just um, that somebody just has an innate talent that definitely helps and gives you a boost, but um, you can develop a certain level of mastery. And I I think it's, um, I heard that it's not, it's, it's kind of a false uh, statement that everybody uh, thinks is true, which is the 10,000 hours, that it's not necessarily 10,000 hours, but it's that idea of repetition and sticking with something and staying focused on something that can, that can develop mastery. The, mm-hmm. the thing that I wanted to get back to about flow, though, um, and I might be misremembering this in the book, but they had an experiment that they didn't allow people to do the things that gave them flow in a day and people started to like lose it. Like they became really frustrated. And so um, it was a great way to point out how we, we may be driven intrinsically much more than we know that it's not about making the money that we find um, that we find those activities within what we do that create flow for us. And then that automatically creates, and it's still work, but it creates a sense of well-being. So, right, yeah, absolutely. Um, I I, I want to move on now to the kind of the two point oh three point oh, the differences and kind of what we see in our in our world. And I think uh, the the best example of this in the book, to kind of give the listeners a little quick summary of it, uh, was the example where. Uh, they did a they did an experiment where they gave five artists a commission, right, payment to create artwork, right, and then they they told five other artists they did not give them money. They just told them to create with the heart's content, right, to to turn on the creative side. Um, then they took those ten pieces of art and gave those finished products to an art commission and had them rank the pieces of art. And without fail, the people who were paid and given a commission were uh, rated the lowest compared to the people who were given the freedom. 
The same thing goes towards the experiment of they gave people a box of tacks and a candle and a wall. And they said, you need to figure out how to get this uh, candle to stick to the wall and have the wax not drip onto the floor. Right. And the people who were paid figured it out much slower than the people who were doing it just for the creative problem solving. So money does not always equal the ability to do things faster, do things better. Um, it, it can sometimes narrow your focus like blinders on a horse right, and cause problems. So Andrew and Catherine really touched on this in their notes. And I, I want to go to Andrew first here. The book talks obviously a lot about the pitfalls of motivation 2.0. And I think, you know, I've, I've probably spent more time observing your calls in my career than anyone else. Cause when I was under you, I, I heard you say probably 35, 50 times that PFP is not a management strategy. Right. So I think this book really kind of gives you a, a example of that. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So reinforcer is the key word. PFP is a reinforcer. Not everybody is reinforced by the same thing. So uh, owners who tend to be overly utilitarian and achievement oriented, a really strong enforcer is the money that they can make a, a utilitarian um, reward. Uh, but still their internal motivation is not the money. It's the independence always is. So looking at PFP as, as that word reinforcer puts it in the right place change the context, change the behavior. So culture drives motivation and behavior. Something, whether it's money is, money is always nice to get. So that doesn't mean eliminate it completely, but some people, maybe a smaller monetary bonus, go back to flow. What gets, what like the, my guys, you know, they don't care about flow. I, I hear we're begging that objection. You know, my, my team, they don't care about flow. They're just, they're hard at work and hot, the hot sun all day. But what do they like about this role? What are good reinforcers? A lot of times when I talk to bookkeepers, what they tell me when I say, how can I, how can I help you enjoy your role or what would be meaningful here? Just look at the reports I, I make. That's a reinforcer for them. So totally. And, and Catherine, you, you had a fairly unique take on this, the routine work concept, right? And we have a lot of clients, you know, in, in the trade and service industry where work can be extremely routine and you were, you were kind of, in your notes, you were kind of debating how can we make this person be more intrinsic, right? Talk a little bit about right. that. Right. So I, you know, I was looking at the, the flow chart that's on page 67 and, you know, it is, it's about what, what is routine. I mean, we base our, you know, the, sa the sales rates based off of Production rates. Production rates are about starting the door in the same location or digging the hole in the same way or loading the truck both safely and efficiently. And so there isn't a lot of room for creativity. I mean, we we almost say don't allow people to be uh, creative in their process because that's how we can have a mismatched jobs. We could go over hours. And so, you know, I I think Colin, when you and I were talking about it. You know, the, the, the reason why that struck me as important is because al although we might be looking at this book as it relates to maybe not our frontline people, more often than not, when I'm hearing about motivation challenges with the clients that I work with, it, 
they're not having struggles. Well, sometimes they are, but more often than not, they're not having struggles really with like their, their team, their crew leaders, their office team, their sales team. They're having struggles with people that do do the work of the work. And I can't come in on time. I, I'm calling out sick because I just don't want to be here anymore. And that's, so I had that sort of like real struggle for me. Yeah. This so is it possible to be a type I and to work for a trace company? I mean, what does the group think here? Let's go to, to Brian then B. This is where I, <clears throat> I think that the learning pathways play a really big role here. Mm. Um, the learning pathways and having one-on-one conversations with your craftspeople uh, to find out what they value and how you teach them and spending time on teaching them so they feel proud and they feel like uh, they're learning and intrinsically feel good about the work they did, like a kitchen cabinet job that looks so awesome or a landscaping program that, you know, you know, someone leaves and feels so proud of what they've done. I think we have to integrate, integrate 2.0 and 3.0. I think they're not separate. I think there's a lot of integration points that need to be explored, particularly as it went to the if then versus now that, and I think there's some work there to be done. Mute. Yeah, so I want to go to Dee and Andrew here, and Brian, I want to talk about that in a minute here, the, the now that reward system and the idea of specific praise, which we talked about a lot. Dee, you, you had your hand raised. Well, I think that um, we don't want to confuse the idea that routine means that there can't be mastery mm. and that there that. can't be purpose with that. So um, I think that sometimes um, if somebody is working in an office or managerial position or, or a CEO or something like that, they forget that, you know, people have different drives. And so sometimes um, having worked for borders, I understood that sometimes somebody just wanted to be a bookseller so that they had the brain space to go home and write a book. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I remember, uh, I think it was Tim Albertson, Shout out to Tim, talked about how he had a crew leader who wanted to be off by 3 p.m. every day to go fish, right? And that he was able to set up a schedule that allowed that. So, Andrew. Uh, yeah, I think so. Go back to uh, Matthew Kelly talking about how work-life balance really isn't the issue. It's progress and how people want to make progress in their life and they feel balanced when they're doing that. And so training programs give everybody the across the organization, give people the opportunity to make progress at something. I think the, the search for mastery and autonomy, let people need to do it at their own pace to have autonomy around that. But giving people the opportunity to make progress is a reinforcer. Molly. Yeah, that's how I, when I connect it to a primary aim, because it going back to that work-life balance discussion, a podcast that we did, it was really about chasing your primary aim. So how I've looked at it is that I feel like components of autonomy, mastery, and purpose should be included in your primary aim. If you read that primary aim and you can't connect elements of that to those three different categories, I don't think your primary aim is truly written out in the, in the, in the facet or the way that it should. It's not really 
you know, you're not speaking your truth essentially. Um, because, you know, going back to mastery kind of outside of the workplace, do you know what your people, their personal goals are, their personal accomplishments that they're chasing, that's driving them personally, that's, that can ultimately play with their professional worlds. If you're, if you're taking, if you're using economic rewards to get what you want, you're choosing the hardest possible path to get there. Mm -hmm. There are so many other ways that are much more rewarding and faster. Let's go Brian, then D. Yeah. So let's go back to that, that concept of if then now that, Mm -hmm. right. Um, I, I hear all the time, I don't understand. Uh, they have an opportunity to get this PFP bonus and they're, and they're not doing it. <clears throat> it's because people aren't doing it for the money. But that doesn't mean they don't want to feel appreciated. That's the now that. And that's what we often coach is a shared success model. Shared success model. I did this and I'm appreciated. That's good. So it's good to give money as an appreciation, but not to always expect I'm going to give them more money if they do this. They didn't do this. I don't get it. So to uh, Andrew's point, it's not a management tool. It's a recognition tool and appreciation tool. And I share the success that we all achieve. Right. Go ahead, Andrew. Sorry, real quick, just, just to dot the I on that. In the absence of good culture and management, people view PFP as a way for the company not to pay them what they're already owed. So I think I think that emphasizes the um, importance of culture, and I promise I'm going to get the captain in a second. But I just want Molly to touch on this. Molly, you mentioned how sometimes people can think they're giving autonomy, but really they're not because the culture is not set up for it. And talk about your experience in your previous company with the whole concept of unlimited uh, pay time off. How you, you you would think that that gives people more autonomy, but the culture has to be right that that actually works. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. There's, I think that there needs to be, fra- you should check that there are frameworks or test that there are certain things in place like trust um, and you know, general trust established between both employee and management so that the autonomy is authentic. You're saying I'm giving autonomy, but are are we really giving? Am I am I really approved to do these things? Do I, I sometimes I feel like I have someone hovering over my shoulder or you say that we have unlimited days off, you know, it's a selling point for new hires for the company, but it actually doesn't feel that way. They're actually really watching you and really counting and really making judgments. So ultimately people don't take more time off. Um, I've, I've seen it personally. It does not work in certain environments, in other environments where there is trust established and, you know, communication, there's no feeling of um, ulterior motives it can work, but you have to make sure that there's, that that trust is established for autonomy to feel real. Yeah. I love that example. Uh, let's go to, to D. Um, um, I think you, you raised your hand a couple minutes ago on a totally different topic. So I apologize. But if you <laughs> remember what it was, I, it's your I, yeah, I almost forgot, except it kind of, it kind of ties in. Um, so the economics of it, um, that concept of the, having that base threshold of pay, and knowing that someone is, it, it kind of goes with hierarchy of needs. Your your basic needs are taken care of with that base threshold of pay, and then anything beyond that, you know, whether it's um, I, I I love the idea of the shared success model as opposed to the now that. Like I think that it 
Um, it definitely feels more like part of a team. But when Molly was talking about the whole time off piece and that unlimited time off and, and having autonomy over that, uh, it brought me to that point that they, um, in the book that he was discussing people having the, the FedEx days, the, that 20% spending 20, like going forward, spending 20% of their time on their own project that um, right. might help the company. But a lot of times they weren't spending that 20% because they didn't want to neglect their team and what was happening with the team for their own uh, you know, ideas and um, playing around with that. So I, um, yes, I do think that a lot of times the, um, the motives of the company giving that kind of autonomy, and I use air quotes on that, um, it, is, it is, you know, basically a double-edged sword um, when it comes to watching how someone handles that autonomy, um, that it's not really freedom at all, but a way to use the stick. Yeah, absolutely. Catherine. I wanted to bring it back to the idea of pay for performance and something that I think I've always admired in the Nolan painting sales process or sales commission structure. You know, they, they're not using the carrot as a primary, um, excuse me, they're not using commission as a primary carrot, right? They are, they're using um, a, a pretty high base compensation model and they are a part of the team and they are incentivized um, by making individual and team goals but it is not to the degree that a lot of a lot of other companies might do and I and I've always thought like that that actually is the best indicator for me of why this um, you know intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation works it's because now we are we are making sure that everybody is, their basic needs are met and they can be competitive in a way that maybe salespeople typically are, um, but it's, it, they are not driven by the dollar, right? They're, they're allowed to feed, feed that need, I guess is what I'm thinking about. It was just something that I, that I did think about. So I, I'd like to ask one last question here. Um, obviously, if anyone has comments, feel free, but my, my last question would be a great kind of takeaway from some of our clients. What, what are ways that our clients can overcome just using 2.0 and what are tools at their disposal? What recommendations will we make to engage their people in the 3.0 world? Uh, let's go, Andrew, Brian, then Catherine. Purpose, write a vision, make sure your people know the vision. It starts with the leader. So write your vision and then have your people write their own primary aim and core purpose. Mastery, give, create training programs, give people the opportunity to over and over again, get better. Every winter, do leadership training, uh, do craft training all the time. Autonomy, give people the freedom to, to train at their own pace, which may, which may not be the pace that you want, uh, but give people the, the freedom to choose what they get good at um, and the autonomy to do it at their own pace. Right. So type I's each have each are driven by their 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 own intrinsic needs. So really understanding what what each uh, what drives each person. Go into the disc and go into the second half of the disc profile that talks about motivators. And there are there are a dozen motivators now 
and there's a wheel and see where the, where the energy goes in that wheel and understand how to build some incentives around what they care about. Molly, you mentioned to incorporate the three items into uh, someone's primary aim. My, my takeaway there is to update our primary aim structure to address autonomy, motivation, and purpose with, with specific questions geared towards those three. Awesome, Catherine. Um, I think if, you know, if you're following the cascading planning process, staying connected one-on-ones with your team, become a routine. And so you can attend to all of the things that Brian and Andrew just said with a lot of regularity. So instead of it being just a, oh gosh, I got to remember to check in or I wear, I wonder where this person is. You've got your one-on-ones scheduled with your team. And it then be, can become a regular part of a conversation instead of just an afterthought. Yeah, Andrew. Sorry, I, I think a, a great tangible example I was thinking during this could be is the way Nolan Painting created training videos. There was a little bit of a reward, but they gave people the autonomy and the freedom to clock out, to clock into a training um, item for a certain amount of time. And they had the culture in place, Molly, to your point, they had the, the culture in place for people to respect it and appreciate it. And over time, like the videos got really good. I mean, people started innovating and somebody saw one and then made the next one better. I mean, it was, it was, and, and the reward was mostly intrinsic. It was a small monetary reward, but it was mostly intrinsic. Said. Yeah, just to piggyback off of that and <clears throat> kind of what I talked about in my notes was I think it's motivation 3.0 before motivation 2.0. So you have to <clears throat> you have to have motivation 3.0 completely solidified before you move on to using operant conditioning. And I think when you when you have that, you're getting that buy-in. You're making sure that people know that they're cared about, that they have autonomy, that you're diving into their purpose, that you're allowing them opportunities for mastery. And then you can carefully put in those positive reinforcer opportunities, um, and, and it works really well. Like with the, I was thinking about Nolan Painting too, um, through the Sandro. Awesome, that, that's great, Sid. I love that. Go to go to 3.0, then back down to a two. Oh, um, you know Andrew's point about training videos and uh, the Nolan Painting way that they involve the people, co-creation, culturing. Co co-creation. I help to create this. I have a culture now. I'm in. I'm engaged. As opposed to, here's your new training video. Go ahead now. Train all your people on it. And you haven't really bought in. Getting buy-in is critical. Absolutely. Any any final thoughts on drive before we we, we put this uh, discussion back in park? Awesome book. Read it. Love it. Well, thanks, everybody, for, for a great discussion. Thank you, Colin. Uh, Thank you. Everyone have a great day. Thanks for listening to this episode. Out of the Hourglass is recorded and produced by the team at Nolan Consulting Group, a nationwide business coaching and consulting firm with coaches located throughout the country. 
Have a question, comment, or idea for future episodes? We'd love to hear from you. Visit our website, www.nolancg.com.